Okay, let's come back together again. And I want to build on a little bit that Jay um, talked about, but maybe just give some helpful tips that I have found um, useful in my own evangelism with Muslims. I started working with Muslims 20 years ago and came across Jay's whole uh, team and ministry about 16 years ago. I had been working with Muslims in, uh, with refugees all through London, um, living among the refugee populations, and I'd been taught that the way you reach Muslims is friendship only, is coming alongside, never challenge Islam, never challenge Muhammad, and so on. And then um, as I was in the homes, I found myself sitting on uh, uh, floors, eating lovely Middle Eastern and Asian food. And suddenly a father would come home or brother would come home and he would take me on in a debate. And I was ill-equipped to know how to defend my faith and also ill-equipped to know how to challenge Islam. And so a friend told me about there's a debate between a Muslim and a Christian. And I said, we're allowed to debate with Muslims. This is wonderful. Um, coming from Africa, I had no issue with that. It was only when I came to Britain that I found there was this reticence to really engage um, confidently and almost overtly and openly with Muslims, even in the West, even here in Britain. So I went to this debate and it happened to be Jay, I didn't know who he was, and he was standing there um, at, down on Houston Road and there was um, a, sh- a sheikh called Sheikh Omar Bakiri Mohammed. He was a radical Muslim cleric of the Al-Mahajirun. You might have heard of the Al-Mahajirun and they are disbanded now in Britain, but they used to function very freely here. They would go down to Trafalgar Square once a year. They would invite the Prime Minister and the Queen to Islam. And we would go down there and we would meet with the Muslims down there. And Jay gets up on the stage and the whole debate was um, the kingdom of God versus the Islamic state, the Islamic Khalafa, the Islamic kingdom. And when Jay got up there after the Muslim uh, sheikh had been uh, giving a very powerful speech and the whole of the Muslim audience were on their feet and it was a very vibrant, quite a hostile situation with banners around the room saying Islam the future for Britain, Islam the answer to Britain's problems and so on. Jay got up there and did the clearest presentation of the gospel I have ever heard and did a fantastic comparison between Islam and Christianity. And I turned to my friend, and we were sort of um, shoved down in our chairs because we were very intimidated, and um, I said, who are these Christians? This is the kind of Christian I want to be involved with, the kind of Christian that goes on the streets, that publicly defends Christ, even in the face of radical Islam. And that's when I started going down to places like Speaker's Corner, meeting the team, and we started building a workshop that we run every Sunday, Um, in central London if any of you are based in London you're more than welcome where we specifically train Christians how to um, the debates and the answers and the polemics they need to confidently engage Muslims and then from there we um, started the Fanda Center for Apologetics someone came up to me in the break and we were talking about how do we empower the church to confidently engage Islam how do we make it so it's just not our little ministry but it's a it's a countrywide movement And as you've heard, Jay is traveling, going to be teaching the world, but we're going to be based in London and our focus is Britain. We want Britain to be equipped. And this is why of zero to five-year-olds in Britain, there are more Muslim children than there are Christian children now. There are more zero to five-year-old Muslim children in Britain than there are Christian children. That means the next generation is Muslim. The next generation, our Christian children need to get ready to engage. 
What's more, our, we find that um, even in areas of Britain where there's no Muslim in, in the villages or in the towns, we find that when our children hit 18 years old and they go off to university, especially the girls, but boys as well, we find because there's so few Christians for our Christian girls to marry, what's available to them are religious, suave, charming, handsome, Arab and Asian Muslim men. And it is an Islamic agenda or Islamic jihad and Islamic mission to marry Christian girls. It is in the Islamic law that Muslim men can marry Christian girls. And many men do do that. In fact, I've met many a young Muslim men who say they want to marry a Christian girl because there's something attractive about a Christian girl, that they see something about her. And our Christian girls are falling for it. So we need to get our young teenagers ready to engage um, Muslim missionaries, including those who are on university campuses. So the church, in some sense, is not ready for this. For example... Often I have had uh, young Muslim boys, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds, debate me about my faith. They are trained in the mosques and in their Quran schools the, uh, uh, the polemics, the challenges against Christianity. One of my colleagues, our colleagues, was um, in a dahwa uh, training session. Dawa means to invite Muslims. Uh, when they they call their evangelism dawa, to invite people to Islam. She was in one of these Muslim training sessions, and the British convert to Islam got on the stage and said, "There's only three things you need to ask the the Christian, and you would completely annihilate their faith." You just ask the Christian the the reliability of their scriptures. Is the Bible the word of God and is it reliable? Ask them about that. They don't know how to defend it. Ask them about the divinity of Jesus and ask them about the Trinity and then you've annihilated their faith. And many, many of our Christians do not know how to defend those three core areas of the Christian faith which is why we need to travel and train and equip our people to be ready on those three areas and so much more to then take the challenge back to Islam and to challenge Islam itself. And this is why, and this is why we are polemicists in Fanda, because Muslims have never been questioned about their faith. Muslims, and we don't know as Christians really how to challenge their faith. We don't know the questions to ask. I'm generalizing here. We don't really know how to prod, um, sort of a prod a hole in their religion. And because for 1400 years, Islam has been so confident, has built this wall up of confidence, believing that the Quran is perfect, believing that Allah is the supreme being, believing that our scriptures have been changed. And because our response to Muslims here in Britain tends to be very gentle, we talk about a kind Jesus in Christianity, we talk about a loving Jesus in Christianity, Um, We talk about meekness and mildness. That doesn't work in the Muslim mind. They want to see power. But of course, Jesus is powerful. But we've forgotten to emphasize that in our evangelism in the church. Um, we, We emphasize Jesus' kindness, not realizing kindness can mean tough love. So this kind of Jesus we have communicated with people in the masses is not the kind of Jesus that the Muslim is generally attracted to. But Jesus was a passionate, powerful Middle Eastern uh, man when he came and walked with us on earth. And that's the Jesus we need to give to Muslims to communicate with Muslims. 
Now, one, I want to give just a few tips that I have found helpful, and I probably use these ideas and arguments almost every time I talk with a Muslim. And it's always doing a comparison between Islam and Christianity. One of the most helpful ways of engaging the Muslim mind is always do a comparison between Islam and Christianity. And when you ask a probing question of Islam, when you ask a polemic that challenges Islam, always provide the solution, the alternative, which of course, again, is Christianity, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one of the most helpful ways to become a confident evangelist with Muslims is by understanding our differences. It's our differences and knowing our differences on the core parts of our faith that helps us and helps us become confident evangelists among Muslims. So I'm going to very quickly look through a couple of differences that I find helpful to, to use with Muslims. Why is this important? Many Muslims, and you may, will have heard this, will come to you and say, Allah and Yahweh is the same God. Many Christians, including missionaries to Muslims, will come to you and say, Allah and Yahweh are the same God. So if that's your starting point, you will begin to find as much common ground as you can. But that goes against what the whole of the Bible teaches. The Bible never says to find common ground with a false ideology. More of that in a minute. There's five areas I have found extremely helpful when it comes to debating Muslims. Five key areas that if you're in your church and you're a pastor, your pastor will have hopefully taught this well. It's the differences between God. So Yahweh versus Allah. Jay talked a little bit about this. The differences between human beings, how God views human beings in Islam, how God views human beings in Christianity, how Muslims view non-Muslims and how Christians view non-Christians. So how human beings interact with each other according to the religion and how God and human beings react to each other according to the religion. Vast differences between the two. Then sin, the concept of sin, completely different in Islam and Christianity. In fact, evil and sin is not such a serious issue in Islam. More of that in a minute. Salvation. Are you aware there is no salvation in Islam? And that's a question you can ask a Muslim. To you as a Christian, what is salvation? Just throw out at me. What is salvation? Exactly. What are we saved from? Judgment. What else? Hell. Hell. Yeah. What else? Sin and its power. So we're saved out of something in this world that is not perfect. In Islam, there's no concept of being saved out of this world, out of an imperfect world into a perfect world. More of that in a minute. And then eternity. Eternity is vastly different between the two religions. So God, human beings, the concept of sin, salvation and eternity Without going, this is um, topics on, in and of themselves. So I'm not going to go too detailed. Jay talked a little bit about the difference between God. But human beings, how God relates to a human being and how human beings are to relate to each other. Well, how you know how a Muslim is supposed to relate to another human being is you go back to his texts or her texts. You go back to the Quran and you go back to the life of Muhammad. That is how a Muslim is to know how to treat a non-Muslim. And what the Quran teaches about how to treat a non-Muslim is vastly different to what the Bible says to treat a non-Christian. Let me give you a story that just to um, exemplify this. 
There was a Muslim man who was training here in Britain. It was up in Scotland. He went to the Royal College of Surgeons. He was a fairly radicalized Muslim. He was part of the Muslim Brotherhood, from which radical Islam comes out of today. And on campus, he would go around and meet all the Muslims on campus, and he would tell them that if they weren't praying five times a day, they needed to start praying five times a day. He would ensure that they fasted at Ramadan. He'd put pressure on the women if they didn't wear the veil and the hijab. So he was a fairly traditional, radicalizing Muslim. And when I say radical, I don't mean a Muslim necessarily who go blow himself up in a bomb. But I mean a Muslim who supports using any means to bring Islam to power. So he himself may not become a radical terrorist, but he would support certainly um, a radical agenda. He decided to go to Saudi Arabia because he thought that's the heart of Islam. That's where Islam started, so he thought. And he went to Saudi Arabia, and as a pediatrician, as a doctor of women and children, he saw things happening behind the scenes that appalled him. He had never seen the abuse of women and children like he had seen in Saudi Arabia. Of course, it's never documented, it's all hidden. And when he saw this abuse of women and children, he, became, he began to become disillusioned about his Islamic faith. Then someone gave him polemical papers that Jay and others had written on a CD. In fact, I think it was a floppy disk back then. So this is going back a few years and gave him some papers. And he started reading these papers and he became incensed. How dare this Christian man say these things about my Muhammad, my prophet? How dare he say these things about Islam that is not historical and so on? And as he read through, though, he saw that every claim that was made in these papers was backed up by an original source, either an Arabic source, an Islamic source, or historical evidence. And then within that of those papers, it pointed him to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, he came across the verse as he was reading, where Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit got a hold of him and he committed his life to the Lord. And he said, all my life, I've been following the wrong man. My man that I followed killed his enemies. This man, Jesus, died for his enemies. That's the difference between how a Muslim is to treat a non-Muslim and how a Christian is to treat a non-Christian. A Muslim, according to their Quran, chapter 5 of the Quran, verse 33 is a good example of it. They are to kill the unbeliever, especially if the unbeliever refuses to sign up to Islam. In the Bible, we're called to love our enemies. Do you see? We're poles apart, even in how we are to interact as human beings. Sin is a total different concept in Islam compared to Christianity. We, and this is, I'm going to just give you in a minute a helpful way to show the seriousness of sin in Christianity, according to the Bible, as a way to help the Muslim understand what sin has done. Because Muslims don't understand what sin has done. Because we as Christians know that sin has completely destroyed our relationship with God. And it has destroyed our relationship with each other, um, just as men and women, as husbands and wives. It's just destroyed our relationships. And in Islam, there's no concept of that 
because there is no concept of Allah in relationship with his creation, with his human beings. There is no concept of deep loving relationship between man and woman and between Muslim and non-Muslim. So there's a whole thing missing in what sin has done in Islam. Salvation. We, when we are saved, we are completely transformed and God makes us so we can enter into his presence and live with him one day. And that's the big difference between Islam and Christianity. In Islam, there's no transformation apart from external works to try be good, to try enter the paradise where you will enter a world of sinful, carnal, sexual relations, especially if you are a man. And this is what I ask my Muslim friends. I always say to them, are you going to get to God one day? My Muslim friends say, most of them say, oh, yes, yes, yes. I said, really? Your Quran says you're going to live with God. You're going to walk and talk with God. You're going to be able to ask him any question you ever want to ask. <laughs> and they say, oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to walk and talk with God. We're not going to live with God. So I say to them, that means Allah. Is Allah walking and talking with you in your paradise? And no Muslim can say that he is. The most a Muslim can say, according to the Quran, is that they will catch a glimpse of Allah on the last day. That's it. And I say to my Muslim friends, isn't the point of religion to either get to God or in other religions to at least become into a move into a higher spiritual state, if you're Hindu and so on? Isn't it something about getting to the divine? In Islam, you never get to the divine. So what's the point of this religion? What is the point of Islam? You never get to the divine. You never get to Allah. You never get to talk with Allah. What is the point of this religion? You only get to move into a garden that looks very much like what we have here on earth. And help them see what they are missing compared to what we're having in the Bible. Revelation 21 is a great verse to go to if you want a key verse to explain the differences between Islam and Christianity. So, remember this when you engage with Muslims. On every core point of the gospel, Islam teaches the opposite. On every core point of the gospel, Islam teaches the opposite. And also remember this, this was said by a Hafiz. A Hafiz is someone who knows the Quran off by heart. This is a Hafiz who knows the Quran in three languages. He was an Islamic law teacher before he was converted to Christ, before he became a Christian. And he says this, on um, Muhammad came to undermine and undo the work of Christ. Muhammad came to undermine and undo the work of Christ. Now, my Muslim friends say to me, Betty, why do you reject Muhammad? We love Jesus. How many of you have heard a Muslim say that? I said, ah, oh, you love a man called Isa. I don't recognize your Isa of the Quran. Isa is a good man. He's much better than Muhammad in the Quran. In fact, Surah chapter 19, verse 19, says that Isa is righteous. And we know only God is righteous. Yet Surah 19, chapter 19, verse 19, says Isa is righteous. But who is this Isa? I don't recognize the Isa. Nevertheless, you say you love Isa or you, you say that's Jesus. I so say, let me tell you why I reject Muhammad. Because 600 years, so Muhammad died 632, 600 years or so before Jesus, before Muhammad came, 
God showed us very, very clearly there was no need for another prophet. Let me tell you why. This is a key verse to use with Muslims. I use it with Muslims all the time. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. It says, in the past, God used to speak through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But now he speaks through the son. Now he speaks through the son. There's no need for any more prophets to come because now he speaks through the son. That verse was written for Muslims. It really helps them say, my Bible says there's no prophet to come because it's all been satisfied in Jesus. It's all been sorted in Jesus. Plus, this is what else Muhammad does. He takes us back to before the Lord Jesus Christ to go under the law again. Everything Jesus came to do, Muhammad undermines and undoes. Show the vast differences between the two religions. Now, some Christians will come to you and will uh, go against you uh, publicly engaging with Muslims and publicly challenging Islam. Lizzie has had this recently. Lizzie joined our team last year and she not only has Christians challenging her, as we all do on the team, but she's had many Christians or some Christians go against her, as all of us on the team have. How dare you publicly challenge Islam? How dare you cause unrest because you challenge Muhammad? In fact, I'm going to be going to court soon to defend a street evangelist who is in court because he said some truths about Muhammad's life. And everything can be sourced in the biography of Muhammad, but the police don't know that. And I'm going to go in with the biography of Muhammad and show exactly where the street preacher got it all right as a defense to show this man was really teaching Islam. So Lizzie has had people challenge her in the last few months in her own circle of Christian friends. And I use three verses to help challenge my Christian friends in case you come across this too. Um, Dr. Uh, uh, um, John Lennox um, pointed this out once when he was preaching. Many of us have heard the sermon 1 Peter 3 verse 15, defend your faith, be ready to defend the faith. But actually, Preachers sometimes forget to do the verse beforehand in the context of fear and threat. Be ready to defend your faith. That's the first thing. So the context of a somewhat precarious situation, be ready to defend your faith. One of Fanda's main key verses is 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. Most preachers focus, focus on verse 4, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, and they say, for we, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and so on. Verse 5 says, for we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Boom, <laughs> right there. Islam is a pretension that has set itself up against the knowledge of God and we demolish the argument we demolish the argument. And note I say, we don't demolish the people, we demolish the argument. We have that's a clear distinction to make. Then 2 Corinthians 4, and I don't need to tell this to a group of evangelists, we clearly present the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, and the whole of the chapter really, we clearly present the, the, present the truth. We, we don't muddle it, we don't change it, we clearly present it. So a couple of distinctions that are helpful to make. We engage the people of Islam and we engage the ideology of Islam. Two distinctions. We need to make that very clear. So people think sometimes we're attacking Muslims when we debate with them. No, we're not attacking Muslims. We're only attacking the ideas. Very clear to make. Muslims themselves, you have Islam the religion, Muslims the people. Islam is what we challenge. 
Muslims are made in the image of God and God died for them. So we love the Muslim, but we challenge the ideology. So we build bridges with the people of Islam, the Muslims. We do not build bridges with the ideology. And again, I probably am talking to the converted here, but so many people in the church will not understand that difference. We build bridges with Muslims as fathers and sons and daughters and mothers and singles and marrieds and all the rest of it. But we do not build bridges with the ideology. And one helpful distinction, again, you'll think why she's saying this, but so many times when I speak at conferences and to churches, as we go around training, I have to say to the congregations, love does not mean you sign up to everything your friend believes. Love does not mean you accommodate everything your friend believes. So here's a helpful key verse that we use in evangelism with Muslims. I use this with Muslims almost every time I speak with them and every kind of Muslim I come across except your more secularized liberal. And it is the key verse, and again, this was something that Jay introduced many years ago and it's just such a helpful tip. And it's Genesis 3 verse 8 and 9. Genesis 3, verse 8 to 9, has God walking in the garden and talking to Adam and Eve. He calls out to Adam and Eve. Muslims don't have this story in the Quran. God, Allah, was not walking and talking in the garden and engaging with his people. So right at the beginning of our Bible, God was walking and talking with Adam and Eve. Not so in Islam. First distinction, first difference. This goes back to the difference between God, humans, sin, salvation, eternity. Then I have found it helpful, and I can give you the, the, my notes on this. That gives you all the verses you need and all the points I'm making. But I have found it helpful to go right through the Bible and find every time you see God speaking face to face with a human. So Exodus 3.11 says God used to speak to Moses face to face as a friend speaks to a friend. Um, God speaks to Abraham at the tents of Mamre, to uh, Samson's mother twice and the father, to Gideon, to Hagar and so on. Constantly walking and talking with us through, through the scriptures. Not just to prophets, even just to people who really were not people of much significance. To anybody God kept meeting with them. So when he comes as Jesus um, for 33 years, it's kind of what he was doing anyway. <laughs> That's who God is. So it's not a weird thing to us. And then Revelation 21, in eternity, it says God will dwell with his people. He will wipe the tears from their eyes. He will take their mourning and their crying away. He himself is going to dwell with them and make everything new. So it's a theme, a helpful theme right through the Bible to use. Then compare it to Islam. Was Allah in the garden with Adam and Eve? No. Did Allah face to face meet with any of the people of old through the Quran? No, except Moses. So Muslims have borrowed the story of Moses. In Surah 27 and Surah 20, Moses is approaching the burning bush. Then in the Arabic, it says, Min fi, from within the burning bush, Allah talks to Moses. That means Allah is in the burning bush. It's the one anomaly of the whole Quran, a brilliant chapter to use with Muslims, because they've borrowed it in without realizing it completely contradicts Islamic theology. 
God, Allah, Minfi is speaking to Moses from within the bush. Fascinating story. Brilliant to use with Muslims. So that's the vast difference between um, Islam and Christianity. The God that walks and talks with us and the God that does not. Vastly different. Now, my time is wrapping up, so there's so much I want to share. But a real helpful thing to remember when you're talking with Muslims is this. And again, I think it was already brought up a little bit this morning. Um, when you meet a Muslim, you will meet your radical types. You will meet your moderate, who really um, who doesn't know much about the Quran. You will re- meet Quran-only Muslims. They only follow the Quran and none of these other extra uh, stories that are out there of Muhammad. They won't follow his biography. You will meet liberals. You will meet traditional Muslims who are either well-read or not well-read at all. Mostly are not well-read. And so you will hear all sorts of claims from Muslims on the streets. And you know what I always ask whenever I hear a claim from a Muslim, and I know it's not true, or even if you don't know much about Islam, so you're not sure, you say, oh, can you show me where you got that idea from? So Muslims will say, Allah loves us. Allah loves all human beings. Oh, really? Can you show me the Quranic reference where it says that? Because I've read the Quran and it's not there. You want a God that loves, I'll tell you about the God that loves. And I'll tell you about the God that proves that he loves you, which is, of course, the cross. Muslims will always make a claim. So I say, always go back to the book, to the Quran, and always go back to the life of Muhammad. Go back to the book and the man, the book and the man. Now, why is that? Because the Quran says very, very clearly that whatever Muhammad and his messenger have decreed, Allah and his messenger have decreed, you must obey it. Let me give you some verses. Surah chapter 4 verse 80. He who obeys the messenger has indeed obeyed Allah. Surah 47 33. O you who believe, obey Allah and obey the messenger. Surah 33 verse 21 and 68.4. Indeed in the messenger of Allah you have a good example to follow. And then Surah 33 verse 36. It is not for a believer, man or woman, when Allah and his messenger have decreed a matter to have any option in the matter. So over and over again, it says you must obey Muhammad, you must obey Allah over and over and over again. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to do a wrap up, doing a comparison between the man that they are to obey Muhammad and Jesus, who we follow, our role model. They say Muhammad is the role model. That's what the Quran says. So let's do a comparison, this is what we'll end with, between Muhammad and Jesus. And these are helpful comparisons. I can give you all the references in a minute. I'm going to quote from sources, that Islamic sources, from the biography of Muhammad, that's Ibn Hisham, and Sahih Bukhari, which is the sayings of Muhammad. So Muslims, to know how to obey Muhammad, have to go to the Quran. They have to go to the Sira, S-I-R-A, which is the biography. They have to go to the Hadith, which are the sayings of Muhammad. They have to go to the Tafsir, which is the exegetes of the Quran. And they have to go, some have to go to Islamic law and they have to go to their histories. So there's all sorts of genres of literature they have to go to. So I've gleaned from these genres of literature to look at this role model of Islam. We'll end with this. Jesus was born of a virgin. Even the Quran says he was born of a virgin. Pretty special person. Pretty special being. Muhammad was born just like you and I. Nothing special about him. 
Jesus was spiritually mature and was found in the temple at an early age and they were the religious leaders were surprised by how much depth of knowledge that he knew. Muhammad was illiterate according to traditional sources of Islam and he came from a pagan family. He was a pagan. He was an idolater. In fact, we now know Allah is the name of a pagan god from Petra, Jordan. That's where the latest historical critique is pointing to. Jesus in his ministry had nowhere to lay his head. He gave everything. He sacrificed everything. Muhammad, when he became a man of power, when he became a prophet, he raided and looted the villages and the towns and 20% of the wealth came to him. And the most beautiful women were divided up between him and his men. He looted and raided and became extremely wealthy. Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle, showing power over life and death and over the nature and so on. Muhammad did no miracle. Jesus made the blind eye see. Muhammad made seeing eyes blind. Jesus helped the lame to walk. Muhammad made the walking lame. Jesus took the withered hand of a man on the Sabbath day even and healed the withered hand of a man. Muhammad cut off a man's hand simply because he stole an egg. And that's in Islamic law, of course. Jesus forgave the woman of the night, the adulterous woman. He forgave and reinstated these women, treated them with respect as saw them as made in his image and and forgave them. Muhammad stoned the adulteresses. Jesus raised the dead. Muhammad killed the living over and over and over again. Jesus excused and forgave his opponents. Muhammad had his opponents killed. It's all in the biography and the Quran of Muhammad. Jesus sets the condemned free. Muhammad enslaved the free. In fact, we have 1400 years of Islamic slavery and even the transatlantic slavery that went to America and Britain for 400 years, by the way, was started probably by Islam. That's where all the evidence is pointing towards. Islam was the foundation for it. Jesus was sinless. Muhammad was sinful. In the Quran, he has to ask forgiveness. Jesus died for sinners. Muhammad had sinners killed. And this is the best. Muhammad is dead. He cannot help a Muslim. Jesus is alive, even according to Islamic theology. Then ask your Muslim friend, who would you rather follow? See how vastly different these two religions are? On every point of the gospel, Islam teaches the difference. Muhammad came to undermine and undo the work of Christ.